directly with the coach man. D20 Radio, your gamers roll. radiocom for initiative. Hello, folks, and we are back from Gen Con. Jason and Woo-hoo! I, fresh back from Gen Con, weary-eyed, ready to go to sleep. Just got back, have not lucky. slept. Just got back, have not slept. Yeah. Can't tell you how many days we were walking around wandering like zombies in there, and I'm still going to get you back for jailing me, Jason. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't actually get recording of the actual jailing. And I can't believe you led me over to the booth. You're like, oh, there's something cool over here. And you're like, ooh, come look at this. I am what's so not jailing? sneaky. What's this jailing thing? Go what? ahead, Jason. Tell them about it. Uh, jail and bail. So, you know, one of the oh. cool things with Gen Con is they do a lot of stuff for charity. Mm. And one of their charity events is the ongoing jail and bail. You can have anybody arrested and put in jail for five minutes. Uh, I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's fun. But what was it like? I wasn't there to see you get jailed. Uh, it was actually pretty cool. It was me and some other dude in jail. We were singing. The jailer guy made us sing. So we started <laughs> singing uh, New York, New York, and then um, something else. And then two chicks came in the jail cell, and they were acting all flirty and, you know. <laughs> Let's just say it goes beyond the rating of this podcast, how they acted. <laughs> It's funny, you know, a lot of people uh, were shocked when they saw all the photos. If they don't know the whole gaming scene, they're like, there's girls there. I was like, there's a lot of girls there. I mean, gaming's for everybody. It's changed since we got into it like 25, 30 years ago. That's true. Yeah. But yeah, gaming knows no borders. That's or nerdity, nerdity knows no borders. I hope you got, well, there's some really nice looking women there with some nice looking costumes. I hope you got those pictures of them. Uh, you know, the one thing I never do at the conventions is take oh, pictures yeah. of costumes. Why? I guess it's just because I know that everybody's taking photos of the costumes. So if anybody wants to know what kind of costumes were there, it's pretty easy to see the pictures. So I save my film, so to speak. I hear what you're saying. So anyway, was Chainmail Bikini Girl there? Yes, she was. Oh, probably. I saw her. Cool. I also. Hey, I'm s- not going to go into some of the things I saw, which can never be unseen. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there was a yeah. Well, well. Hmm. Anyway, Jason and I had a moment to uh, uh, track down and tackle Frank Mentzer. We, we, we trapped him in a very hot, boiling hey, room. He's, you know, he's getting up in the years. We're tackling him for it. Well, we, we had to wrestle him I don't know. i got to tell you, I think he could take us both. He's, yeah. I don't know how old he is, but he certainly doesn't look it. He's a feisty old guy. I mean, he's really cool. We had a yeah. chance to sit down with him, and we had a nice long 45-minute sweating our butt-off interview with him. Actually, Lucky. even longer. But uh, yeah, so, so we were going to be doing that during this show. This show, since it's our just coming back from Gen Con, will be uh, after we have a chance to talk a little bit about some of the stuff we saw. We'll, we'll go ahead and uh, run that interview, and uh, that'll be what we do this week. Yeah. A couple uh, teasers for uh, Frank. He does explain why the rule sets were rewritten by him, and also he talks a little bit about the Immortals box set and how, the, uh, how that came around. So. You definitely want to listen to this interview. It's uh, really cool. We also yep. sat in with, uh, was it Chad from Dead Gamer Society? Yes, yeah. So Chad from Dead Gamer Society uh, sat in and helped us out. Hi, Chad. Hi, Chad. Uh, not hi, hi now. Chad. He's not here now. <laughs> no, he's, he's uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll have them on as, uh, as uh, special guests either next week or the week after. Uh, because I guess we have another special guest coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julie. 
You want to tell us about her? Uh, Julie, oh, right, yeah. That's Julie Hoverson from uh, the uh, the audio drama. She's the one that sent in the, the voicemail about the trap. So we're going to do a traps episode coming up this, I think, this week, yeah. Yep. Yeah, we'll and talk about the... that trap she did in uh, Grimtooth's. So. Yeah, and I was able to pick up a mint, like, brand-new copy of Grimtooth's traps. Nice. So I have it here so I can sit and look through it while we... Do you guys know which trap she did? I think Nick said he found it, actually. Yeah, I believe it was in Traps 4. Okay, well, I've got just Traps number one here, so I don't have hers. But uh, yeah, Did you pick up any good loot, Vince? Oh, I got so much stuff. I just, I just kept spending and spending and spending. Like I said on the, the Facebook feed, if I had millions of dollars, I'd buy everything here. Yeah, I mm-hmm. came back with three bags full of stuff. Yeah. I got um, my. I had my back. Only three. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> what was that thing we saw? Uh, there was one thing we saw. I was telling Nick about it when we had a chance to sit down finally in person. Nick was nice, actually, getting to sit and chat with you in person. Yeah. How was your? Uh, how was your personal meetup? He punched me in the face. Well, he he was very rude, and he he tried to grab my. Uh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> he punched me in the mouth. No, it was really cool. I got to sit down and chat, just talk about Gen Con and. You know where the old school Renaissance is going, and so it was really cool. Now, if we could just all three of us get together at the same time in the same place, yeah, yeah. Well, well. <laughs> that's so what be kind hard. of so what other kind of uh, loot did you get? Uh, I picked up your best stuff. Uh, probably the some of the best things. I got a bunch of modules, even though I don't like modules. Like you were saying to me, I'm surprised you're buying modules. You don't like modules, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they're they, fun to get. I know it was just so tempting, and I got a couple box sets from the original Frank Menser box sets. Wow! Oh, you got the, the that black. You get the black box. Yeah, I got you? the master. I got uh, the expert rules and the companion. Yeah, so that's worth it. They were cheap and they were in good condition, so I had to snatch those up. Yeah, I yeah, saw the- those modules you bought, and I was like, my jaw just dropped. Like, wow, that's pretty good price considering that they're all out of print and they're, yeah, they're in really shocked. good shape. I was shocked yeah. at some of the prices I got on things. I mean, I paid $15 for the Grimtooth's traps, but then I picked up a lot of things like uh, some issues of Dragon from the late 70s, early 80s yeah. that I was missing at about 2 bucks each. You were going nuts, wow. dude, with those Dragon magazines. Oh, I, yeah, everything. Um, I, I'm really excited I got a box, you know, for the full set of the AD&D battle system. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I did go back and buy Amoeba Wars because it's just too cool. Um, this Avalon Hill game from the seventies, or actually no, from nineteen eighty-one, where you—it's a—it's an Avalon Hill space uh, hex sort yes. of galactic conquest game. You know what? I actually cool. had the most fun, Jason, the whole time I was there, other than playing in the game that we played in, because that was super fun too. Oh, but, good, thanks. Uh, the Settlers of Catan, the Microsoft Surface version of that yeah. game—that was so much fun playing on that. That yeah, looked really that slick. The, you saw it on the Facebook feed? Yeah, that was... I'm like, wow. <laughs> Pretty But you impressive. know what's kind of fun? Okay, well, so first of all, over at the uh, uh, the Geek Chic, or the Gamer... Sorry, was it Geek Chic or Gamer Chic? The I tables. It, the I think fancy. it was Geek, Geek Chic. Okay, well, those guys, <laughs> they had set up one also, but what was cooler about theirs is their, their Surface table was an open source version instead of the Microsoft one. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. That was kind of neat. But it was cool they had both of them there. But, you know, honestly, after I watched the Surface thing for a while and I thought how awesome and cool it was, and after I kind of got used to the novelty, then I went over to where they were playing just regular Settlers. Mm. It was still kind of better. <laughs> you know oh, I mean? It's yeah. still... But it was cool that they had it. 
Yeah, I got. Really the, I, I played the uh, Settlers of Catan, the Stone Age version, the Atlantis version. It was so many versions of that game. I couldn't believe Stone it. Stone Age version. Yeah. What was that? You know, get rocks for twigs and what have you. Yeah, or? it was. You collect, you collect hide sticks, rocks to be, and meat and everything to do things. I see you still didn't point out, Vince. I see you didn't bring Nick a new headset. Oh <laughs> I wow! The, I hear the I hear the whishing of the winds and the banging of the drums. I didn't have. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't have my headset <laughs> on me. Sorry, guys. You know. Um, <laughs> some so some others. Well, I'll talk about some of the, the well, actually, other stuff after the interview uh, that's coming yeah. up. Let's get right into but, the uh, interview. And then we'll, we'll I just come wanted to you. point out one thing that I'm that I was really ex- two things I was really excited about buying because we're going to mention this in the interview a little bit. There was a um, an auction. Yes. And anybody who's been listening to the uh, to the little special dispatches will have heard this. Maybe we'll put them all together into one thing. But anyways, if you if people have been listening to the special dispatches, uh, they've heard some of the auction, and uh, it was of course a memorial uh, fundraiser to put a statue up for Gary Gygax, which mm. we'll hear about in the uh, interview. But I got two things. I got, Very cool. I got a copy of – I got Gary Gary's personal copy of of his book, Gary Gygax's World Builder. Cool. Which, uh, yeah, I, I fully intend to honor him by using this properly. And um, the other thing was from Castles and Crusades, his castle Zagig. Oh, you got. Oh, you did want to get. Okay, cool. I did. I you got did a copy it. of the Upper Works one. This is the. Uh, it's it's the Eastmark the Gazetteer. Bur- it's Eastmark Gazetteer for Castle Zagig from oh, the cool. Board Games, and it's signed Very by cool. Greg Gygax. So oh, nice! That yeah. is going to have a permanent special place in my home. Yeah, I left the auction a little early because there was too many people and it was getting a little bit ripe in there. So I was like, Jason, I'm ditching. But it was I remember, pretty packed. Yeah, uh, you did pick up. Uh, didn't you pick up something else also from the auction? Just those two. You didn't get the legendary journeys or something. I was bidding on it and it got up to 120, and I let it go because ah. I was. It got a little rich for my blood. Okay, I thought maybe you won that too. No, almost. They 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 not. They got me down. They knocked oh. me down. Anyway, uh, let's head into the interview, and then we'll come back and we'll chat a little bit more. Feature. Feature. All right, folks, we're sitting here at Gen Con, the Extraordinary of the Year, with uh, Frank Menser. How you doing, Frank? All right. Jason's sitting here with me yep. as usual. And we have Chad from the Game Society. Hello. Yeah, I've gained DM'd for him before. Yeah, <laughs> I have no voice, so... <laughs> Where did you guys play before? Uh, actually, I met Frank at uh, GaryCon 2 uh, just a few months ago uh, in Lake Geneva. Righteous Con, the uh, Gygax course. We go back to GaryCon Zero, which was a get-together after Gary's funeral. Uh, a lot of great folks came, a lot of old TSR alumni, etc. And so we rolled some dice in Gary's honor the very night after we said goodbye. And the family had the idea, what if we do this every year in around the same time in March when Gary passed? So this has been building as more and more people have found out about it. And all the old TSR alumni come, people like stellar names in the industry and the very foundation of things like Mike Carr, artists like Steve Sullivan, um, just everybody shows up for this. And it's like old home reunion. It's great. And it's old school gaming, new school gaming. There's a mixture of everything. What were you running when you played? I was just doing a little first edition thing. I thought it would be fun for everybody to be a monk. And so they ran around out in the wilderness doing their first monk wilderness training with the master or whatever his name. Uh, 
modeled after, the, of course, the old TV show, uh, David Carradine, oh, okay, and so the, forth. Oh, so, so, right. Yeah. So we would. Uh, I, I I did the little research. We didn't invoke the master and a lot of the same shtick and, and right. so yeah, forth. It was really great. We had, I believe, we had uh, two monks of lawful good, two monks of lawful sure. neutral. Because in in first edition D and A D and D monks can be various alignments as long as they're lawful. Now, one of the reasons I'm talking about this in depth is not just to promote Gary Khan, which is you're going to hear about in the near future, you yeah. can bet on. But it's a classic case where I try and do something that few people are doing these days, offering an adventure that you can complete in two, three hours, maybe four tops. So many adventures, especially at cons, are... They, they just feel incomplete. You do the best you can, you can, you can go do your briefing, and you try and hit the finale, and you always run out of time because yeah. there's so many great things to do at a place like this. That's exactly what happened in our game because I was running a first edition game mm-hmm. by Expeditious Retreat, which is awesome. They make really good stuff. Now, of course, Wizards in the fourth edition Encounters line is pushing into something like that, uh-huh. shorties, one-night completions. Yeah. So they're That's aware so of the need and the mm-hmm. market for that. And personally, since I... Uh, we're getting a little ahead, but I hope to get my company started up within the next two years, uh, bring together some old friends like Jim Ward. Don't think fast wow. forward, think Gamma World, Met Alpha, you know, the yeah. foundation level stuff at the dawn of the hobby, working with Harold Johnson, co author of one of the top tournament modules called Lost to Moakin that came out in the 70s, one of the super collectibles, etc. But a dynamite tournament adventure in its day. Let's stick with that because I want to hear more about because I haven't heard about the company idea. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't have. I talked a little about it a year ago here at Gen Con to a couple of people, but nothing public. Unfortunately, a lot of that was overheard. I have yet to really acclimate to the fact that some people treat me like what's that broker EF Hutton, and I start talking. All of a sudden, everybody starts listening. Um, it happens to me on the boards as well. When people ask for advice in games, I give them a suggestion only, and they say, "Okay, that's the rule for the campaign. It's cast in stone." And I say, "Please don't take me for granted." Um, that's a guy yes that's a guy Gaxian pun Um, I thought I caught that Gary and I did a lot of that but um I give advice, and I, the old hippie in me, since I'm a Woodstock vet, honestly, and the whole thing, uh, power to the people and all, it's your game, play it the way you want, not the way I tell you, but thank you for the respect and asking for, hey, you've been doing this for over 30 years, what are your suggestions? Well, that's, they're just suggestions, that's where I'm coming from. But that's from. the thing, is that, you know, you've got, I mean, Dragon's Foot, I guess, which is one of the biggest forums out there, there's other forums, but there's people who are playing first edition, and we don't have... The Dragon Magazine to you know to, which was the Wizards of the Coast to say this is what it is. Yeah, I mean, not that you have to have a final word, but if, if there's 50 different uh, opposing viewpoints, somebody has to at least give you a direction. So I, it's good to have somebody who's done. If there's an argument on those forums. I notice if you if you say something, they're like, boom, done. Mm-hmm. It just, whoop, yeah, that happens. And I'm fighting against that, actually. You know, every game master has the right to his opinions. I also strongly counsel talk to your players, form a group consensus, what style of game you want. Do you want more? Hey, we all like to go out and kill things, but that's not all there is to the game. And any role playing game offers the potential for. You know, the usual things, problem-solving, uh, high-minded, you know, negotiation and stuff. Now, that's more entertainment and adult satisfaction, not adult triple-X yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. internet <laughs> porn, but adult in the look at the attitude towards the gaming, cooperation and so forth. And 
you can shift into that and appreciate those elements. So play the game you way you, the way you want. Talk to your players, get a consensus, say, okay, tonight we're just going to whop things. But then next week we're going to get into a real serious, you know, non-combat type adventure stuff, head games. Yeah, know. which is what the game that we just did. A, we just did a top secret game that Chad ran, and we only rolled the dice twice. Yeah, and these could be dynamite games. players were that good. We well, we got to satisfy that part of it that says, patience, my ass, I want to kill something. You know, <laughs> the old vulture cartoon. Sometimes a good dungeon crawl is what you need. Yeah, so absolutely. The reason we talked about this is because you brought up the idea of this uh, this company. Mm-hmm. So what's the plan? I have some ideas for product lines that I don't see anybody doing. And as long as it's that blue sky, or well, no, as long as it's that far out of the box compared to the current standard products found in the industry, I really can't uh, blow the whistle on any of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. A part of it is from when I started the RPGA and wrote tournaments at that time, tying into what I said earlier, you got to finish it in a four-hour slot right. Okay, for that. Uh, some conventions have actually increased their time slots to accommodate longer adventures. I say, wrong, wrong answer. Shorten the time slots, encourage design for, bang, one-offs. You know, hey, try this, try that. This means less extensive character pre-gens, right. you know, more outline style, but getting right into the fun. So it takes some good design, so I guess not everybody can do that. We'll see. That's what, the direction I want to go. Are you still the, involved with the RPGA? Uh, not really, although I always try and catch whatever RPGA tournament I see when I go to different conventions. A case in point, um, they have official RPGA events at TotalCon in Massachusetts, uh, and I think it's February each year, the largest game convention in the yeah. Northeast, and they're nice enough to have had me there the last two years, and I asked about this coming year, and they say, hey, you can come all you want. We're getting along great, you know, and, and I enjoy... It's not a megacon like Gen Con, okay? No. You know, it's a thousand or less. So you get to know people instead of dealing with mass stuff. It's, it's, well, that, that's, that's the way to go. Gary right, GaryCon is even smaller so far. But yeah. as I say, be careful there because it's growing like mad. Uh, the coolest thing about GaryCon to me, really, despite all the alumni, etc., is it's officially sponsored by the Gygax family. All the family members have come together on this to honor Gary and so forth, and thus all of Gary's friends are absolutely behind this. I mean, we're down with that. Yeah. So, so talking about honoring Gary, there's plans for a Gary Gygax memorial. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an auction to, to help with that yesterday. Quite Gail correct. Uh, Gail had a real rough time, obviously, when, when Gary lost. Just imagine the tremendous personality of the man if you ever got to know him as I did. Most people sadly did not. But uh, such a wonderful guy, a really good, I, I mentioned chaotic good to people, and heavy on the good side there for Gary. Okay? Late in his life, um, he found his Lord and his religion more strongly, embraced it more actively, and uh, did good works accordingly, set a great example. And there's just so much about them. You, you, I could go on for so long about Gary, but so many people are are together with that and want to remember him in a really permanent manner. Some some have snickered at a Gygax statue. I think that's a natural for someone who broke near such ground. Now, my, I have a one-hour tour of the history of D&D and how we got here, and I'll condense it just down to a soundbite. In post-World War II, we started playing these board games, Avalon Hill, Hill stuff then. 
some other companies rose up then, but a lot of people started playing military simulations, and that was the climate, playing these military battle simulations, when the Tolkien elements and other fantasy stuff started getting big in the 60s. And this led, in synergy, then to this first idea, as Gary and Dave, for that, well, you put fantasy and wargaming together, and voila, a new child is born. And in the course of my one-hour lecture, I can show you how Lord of the Rings' Peter Jackson would not have been funded had it not been for Chainmail, which gave birth to D&D, which gave birth to TSR, which gave birth to the imitators, and the explosion of the late 70s and 80s. And it all comes back to Gary Gygax saying, yeah, I'm go- I'll try this. I'll sit in this chair, start with the typewriter. That's all they had back yeah. then, remember. And w- I will devote as m- all of my life, at least for a while, and let's see if we can make this happen, because it has potential. I don't think even Gary saw the potential of what was going to be born out of his creation. But I maintain it comes back to him sitting at one particular point in time looking at a typewriter saying, okay, how do we explain this? I think it's complete. I mean, the idea of having the Gary Gygax Memorial, from a gamer's perspective, it makes obvious sense. But, I mean, from an outside perspective, to somebody who's never gamed in their life, it still makes huge sense because all the things he did actually have these cultural ripples that go across. People who have never picked up a book or a game of any type have had their lives influenced by exactly what you're talking about. When I post on message boards, and thanks for mentioning Dragon's Foot, one of my favorites, I do a lot of Q&A there, I uh, hang out over at the ACM or a KM, which is a .com, yeah, as, yeah. as opposed to dragonsfoot.org, and several other sites, I, um, I couldn't list them all right now. But when I go out, you know, you can set a signature or SIG that mm-hmm. automatically appears every time you post, for those who aren't big on the internet stuff. And my SIG is, quote, my friend Gary changed the world. Remember him, honor him. Yep, agreed. 100% agree there. Well, my, my say on the dragon's foot is Gary's quote about barracks room of lawyers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very good. So, yes, I'm absolutely behind this, uh, yeah. the, the statue. It is not, as I understand it, the intent is that it's something symbolic of his creations as opposed to an egotistical thing of him personally. Maybe we'll move into a quieter room to finish this. Okay, just because cool. Yeah, it's the population right. increased out here a little bit. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. bring this in here. When you were talking about the statue, you also wanted to mention the auction. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, if you want, if you want to work that. a segue uh, to transition this, um, uh, maybe you can do a voiceover later or something. Yeah, I'll, um, just, I'll throw a sound effect in. I usually throw like a whip or a clashing sword or something. So in conjunction with this popular sentiment about honoring Gary uh, and his creations, uh, here at Gen Con we are fortunate enough to have the basically the convention donated prime stage time at the auction room. Now the, the Gen Con auction is an amazing thing. I've been involved with it for nearly 30 years. And you, no, 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 not you, listener, <laughs> you bring your, your stuff in, okay, game stuff that you want to... Yeah. Get, find a new home for it. You're not going to make a fortune with it, but at least you can like recycle it. It's not going to get done. Make dumped. sure the right person gets it. Right. And you put it in the auction, we find a new home for it, and you get the money. And thanks to modern software, you get the money like next day. So you can go hit the dealer room, buy the latest <laughs> cool stuff, you know, and it's just gamer recycling uh, the same way. Uh, it's taken years to, to build this up. 
but we got to pay for the room. We got to pay for all the supplies. We have volunteers to feed, house, the whole thing. And for the auction management, of which I am not these days, just it's a separate company that was formed to do that. They do a dozen auctions or more game auctions, but they have to give up income, revenue by bang, knocking out a couple hours for a charity thing. And they do it wholeheartedly and with applause. You know, it costs them real money is what I'm saying, not just, gee, what a nice gesture. Mm -hmm. So we were lucky enough last night to have approximately 75 items brought in by Gary's widow, Gail. As I mentioned, uh, I know the whole family. Gail and I have gotten along great many times. She served tea with me and Gary on the porch and all. And I know she went through a very, very rough time uh, after she lost uh, Gary. And so it's taken a while. But enough time has come by. She's apparently coming out of the woods in the darkness and embracing life again. And it's great to see that, you know. It's, it's something we all have to go through eventually, losing spouses, uh, parents, or what. But she is ready to release some of the things that Gary owned. And one of them was, for example, a very personal briefcase that he used many times, along with business card, a trade show badge, mm -hmm. uniquely Gary Gygax, you know, and, and stuff that just, they're one of a kind. That'll and, sit in a nice frame. And it was, oh, it was pleasing. I don't have exact numbers, but in those 75 or so items, I believe close to $10,000 was wow. raised wow. from folks like you just bidding and doing things like, yes, yeah, since it's for this cause, I will bid $50 yeah. for an $8 module. Well, you know, I, I brought a it. legendary adventures book at the thing last yeah. night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So no, I got you, I got the one thing that you saw. It was the last thing that you had auctioned off before the thing started. But then I got one, you know, for the actual charity, which I was oh, excited right. to get. And I'm, I'm not going to keep the book hidden away. The provenance goes up. The book will be taken care of, but it'll be played. <laughs> Absolutely. And everything came with certificates of authenticity, or COAs as we call them, yeah. uh, signed by Gail, personally. The whole thing is just dynamite. Yeah. The final item was a briefcase um, that belonged to Gary, as I said, and I was heartened to see that that went over $1,000. Now, some people might be surprised to hear that that was the top item at just over a thousand. Yeah, the grand's a lot of money, but most of the items went for very reasonable prices. So, so many people got to have a little piece of Gary in the course of this. Yeah. Granted, no rare manuscripts, handwritten or hand-typed things of Gary came up. It was all kind of lighter gauge, but those right. were deliberately selected to keep them lighter gauge, okay, and keep make them more affordable, because Gail's intention was strongly to let as many fans get a little piece of Gary in the course of this as possible. The money was almost secondary compared right. to that objective. And I got to give her full applause and top marks for the whole thing. It was great. I really saw the emotion in Tim Cass when he started that whole... Yeah. I, I almost yeah. made me want to tear. Just hear the emotion coming out. You know, it's always I sit next to your friend, but it's not nice to auction off his stuff. And he just... I almost lost it when he said that. I was standing next to him. Was yeah, it was a really emotional moment yeah. at the beginning. It was really moving. Mm -hmm. It really was. But I think that guy who started the bidding by, you know, starting everything at 50, who was buying mm -hmm. it at that, mm -hmm. really kicked it off well, got the the, yeah. uh, the tone of the night well. So, But uh, since we're talking about the auction, it's a good time to bring up the idea of... Uh, you know, the books, because, of course, this is a first edition podcast, and the people who are listening are playing first edition. Cool. Most of us are, uh, what does Nick call them, grognards? Grognard. That's not a word that I ever used before, but I'll, I'll use it. I think that was a Gary word, actually. Is it? I didn't know. We're not sure of the roots, and some say grognards, uh, reflecting the French, <laughs> French. origins. <laughs> um, well, uh, 
since you know a lot of us, we actually just have our books from back then. But on our show, we have uh, young, really young listeners. We have one kid who's 14 years old who has been sending in stuff he's designed. But uh, not everybody can get the books all the time, so it's a good idea to have some place like that to go. Uh, have you looked at any of the the clones? Oh, of course. Um, since this is a first edition cast, you don't need to go through and say, yeah, you want to play first edition advanced Dungeons and Dragons game by Gary Gygax, you buy this product or, or get the free download of a product called Osric and yeah, what it's yeah. and so forth. But th there should be a guide put together somewhere. And now that things have codified, things have shaken out some, you can go and if you like 1E, Shorthand for what I the big yeah. long title I just said, or Tui, or Holmes, the mm -hmm. uh, Dr. John Eric Holmes, the mm -hmm. late Dr. John Holmes, sadly, uh, sadly yeah. from this year. Um, I'm really getting depressed about announcing the latest deaths on the auction stage, um, but we're just aware of we're all getting older and older. You folks listening, uh, luckily, are going to last a lot longer than I am, so you have your choice of going out. Digging around, doing eBay, Amazon, finding the original first edition books, or just doing the free download of Osric. Yeah. Imagine taking your advanced D&D first edition hardback DM guide, rip the cover off, put a plain brown wrapper on it, and just crayon on the front Osric. And that's <laughs> essentially what happened. Okay, now for legal reasons, you got to rewrite the text. So you say it different, but the rules are the same. Yeah. So you can get free or real low cost on Lulu or what have you, versions of Holmes D&D, um, Moldvay Cook D&D, my version, Menser D&D, uh, Gary's AD&D, even OD&D is available in that form. And of course, these are what we call the retro clones, whose objective in design is just duplicate the originals. And then we have retro style, things like the Great Castle and Crusades, which was an old school style in game, but not clone by, by any means, coming up with cool new ways to do things, kind of combining the old and the new. Bottom line, this creates this wonderful old school climate. Now there's some people that say 4th edition is faltering, and who knows? I know that most of the buyers of 4th edition are not the sort of folks who come to a game convention like this. So I don't think any temporary slumps in product values for 4th edition that we're seeing here at the auction are at all reflective of market conditions, because this isn't their primary market. And of course, if Wizards just didn't come at all, everybody would be you know, saying doom and gloom and yeah. they must be in trouble. No, no, not the case. That's just This isn't the primary target, but they come here anyhow to support the industry, to support their image and so forth. So it all works out. Yeah, and our position on the show is, is I mean, our position as people is that we don't care about edition wars or any of that. You know, mm -hmm. we play the one we play. We are really happy that people game, period. Mm -hmm. That's the yeah, end of story. It doesn't really matter which one, but we happen to play this one. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the, uh, to, the, to the old school or the first edition type of things, it's great if somebody who's just getting into the game can pick up an Osric uh, uh, book and come and join a couple of old farts like us who happen to have the other ones, and we all play together. We have the same rules, and it's fine. Or grab, uh, if you don't want AD&D, if you'd like to stick to the, to the classic, you know, then Play pick up Lab Lord, uh, Labyrinth Lord or something mm -hmm. like that, yeah. you know, to replicate that. And there's all the rules, just like they were. It's just in a new, new different wrapper. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful climate like that. I still suspect that somebody inside Wizards of the Coast may have thought this through and said, let's empower our customers by giving them the explicit legal right to write for these games we no longer produce and support. 
and this created this just incredibly fertile and vast field for us all to get out there and grow our own adventures and and products you listener can literally put together your own AD&D adventure and offer it for sale at almost no cost. Just I usually compare it to uh, the whole thing between uh, open source software and commercial mm-hmm. software, and I've done this in you know in my in my business world job that I have, where I've div- given presentations and I'll put up two faces next to each other. I'll put Linus Torvalds and Gary Gygax, mm-hmm. and I use those to explain to people the idea of they call it the uh, cathedral in the bazaar. You know, you've got the cathedral that controls everything, and then the bazaar, which is just a whole bunch of anarchy to everybody doing their own. Mm-hmm. And so I always put up Gary and, Li- and Linus for that. Nice. So, uh, but one of the things about um, first edition also is the pick up and play kind of aspect of it. You know, especially if you're a three book or with OD and D or any of this. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make sure we talked a little bit about uh, advice for bringing people in who maybe have never played the thing before. If uh, you have questions like, do you do you set people down and, and give you know give minis or not? Do you start new players at first level when they've never played the game before? How do you get them in easily? The reason I prefer to run and play uh, old school, if you will, uh, personally, it's usually either first edition AD&D or the set I wrote, uh, yeah. Beckme. It's sometimes called staying for basic expert companion masters mm-hmm. immortals. Um, I prefer to go that way and keep it real loose. If you were a war gamer in 1973, original D&D, OD&D, made all the sense in the world. You read it as a miniatures rule set with this uh, with this new idea of playing a role. But they didn't actually play the roles that well or that much back then. They were thinking in terms of war games. We're in a different mindset these days. I mean, we kind of know what role playing is and we'll skip the basics of, oh yes, you assume the persona of a character in whatever genre. Okay, we'll skip those basics. To get started playing old school, the biggest, best advice I can give you is by pointing at what I don't like about the current version and a couple others. For example, to pick on a neutral turf here, Paizo Publishing's um, Pathfinder Mm -hmm. is a 3.5 and modified from there. Let's go our own direction using a 3.5 core base. A lot of your listeners are going, ooh, (laughs) 3.5, the edition that can't be named or whatever. But hey, chill. A game, game, everybody for their own style of game. Yeah. But in 3.5 and in 4.0, the objective was this is a game with a rule for everything. Every, we, there are rules about everything. And I flipped that. Everything's about rules. Okay? okay. And thus, where did fun go in there? Uh, you try and find the fun while obeying all these rules. Old school style is... Chill with the rules, dude, okay? If you don't know the rule, move on, okay? Arbitrarily decide how we're going to resolve this problem within the next three seconds. You roll the die, you make a decision, and you rock, okay? And you don't worry about the rules. You don't really rule, uh, worry a lot about consistency even. Oh, we did it different yesterday. Well, chill, dude, again. <laughs> You know, this this works whichever way you do it, so let's just resolve that ambiguity by using a randomizer. In other words, roll the die. <laughs> um, 
and move on and focus on the story, the portraying of the roles, the fun, the problem solving, the hacking, chopping, looting, you know, whatever the fun parts are to you, but don't get hung up on the rules. And that's the most important. Go ahead and do try and learn whatever rule set you have adopted as the mutually agreed upon methodology for resolving your differences or for determining variables to lapse into my game designer speak, because that's what I do as a writer. But don't get hung up on that. That's not priority one. Priority one is fun. All right. If everybody agrees on the same random system and they all think it's logical and it is random and they're consistent with the approach, yeah, where's the problem? If you grew up with coin flipping, that's the methodology you'd use in, in determination in your game. If you grew up with an ascending armor class system as the later editions of D&D, then that's what you'd feel good about. Or a descending armor class system for us old guys, yeah. then that's what you got. But whatever works for you, man. Yeah, we were we were talking earlier about the chips in the bag and you know before the dice sort of approach. Mm-hmm. You know. mm-hmm. That's right. Did they come out with the Holmes edition? The chips that's when first came out because they ran out of dice set. No, I thought the chips. You have to maybe you can straighten it out. I thought chips were before dice just because nobody had found polyhedral dice yet. Well, I've been doing the auction for so many years. We see a lot of these. I was also at TSR from 1980 to 86. And the PR story was, oh, we experimented with using chits because, for one thing, in prisons and other restricted environments, they were down on dice. You can use them to play gambling games involving money. Um, Also, in other, shall we say, more sensitive religious situations, there were problems with dice as opposed to this. The true story was that management at one point said, boy, we're spending a lot on dice. Let's see if we can cheapen it out and we'll put in some laminated plastic or, or plastic laminated cardboard and we can save a good old three, maybe four cents a box set by doing that. And so they tried it and it bombed and yeah, so they dumped it and they went back to the dice right away. We all like our dice. Yeah. It's, it's a sub-feature of the hobby and that was the wrong thing to do. So they got off that you know, right away. Do an entire show just on dice. Yeah, we did actually, because <laughs> they're just so much fun. History on the chips, it's though. So yeah, neat. But the other one is uh, is about minis, then, mm-hmm. because it's the same sort of thing. Different people have started out playing differently, with or without minis. And so I'm always kind of wondering when I'm bringing people in that haven't played before. You know, should I have minis or not? Because I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. We are again in almost a golden age for miniatures because you can for cheap very little money, pick up a fully painted, immediately usable miniature. Now, okay, fine, I'm an old fart, but um, way back when, in the 70s, uh, you could get some minimally detailed figures if you're willing to get out the X-Acto knife, cut off all the flange, (laughs) get to work with paints and primers and so forth, and mount them on bases. They were on dinky little bases, but they'd fall over in a heartbeat. (laughs) Uh, Before then, shortly before I got into it, you had to find the kits, buy ingots of lead-based metal, And and if you're really into it, uh, your own furnace, and you'd melt your metal into the into the. I mean, it's like a miniature steel mill. The you know, the big th- ladles, pouring it into the. Well, if you're playing a dwarf, then you feel more appropriate yeah. with the ladle. And the right. Uh, so we're in a great period, and I give all the credit for this to Wiseman at WizKids, who was the first to say, "Let's do this whole game, this clicks game." Okay, yeah. oh, Mage yeah. Knight. Okay, was the yeah. first one. And we'll have them all painted in the Orient and ship. And then everybody was on the bandway. You know, everybody was down with that in seconds. Because it was the a big quantum leap in miniatures gaming. 
On the other hand, a couple of times it has driven me nuts when I have tried to introduce old school gaming to some new school players, and they put their figures out, and I say, okay, and you arrive in town and head down the main street. And they do it five feet at a time they down like Main Street. Game. Okay, right. They just need to be awakened, though, because once I get them out of that mold and, and into free form, it's, oh, and we don't have to, and we're not stuck with, and we're not limited in, and, you know, it's just whatever I want rather than all these rules. So that that's the miniatures uh, all the time make a great visual aid. Oh, look, we'll put this one up on three sets of six-siders to indicate he's up on the wall. And it gives you even three-dimensional aspects for line-of-sight calcs, all sorts of things for gaming. So they can be very cool, but it's not what the game's about. It's the fun. Use these as aids to have more fun and don't get hung up on where they are and which direction they're pointed. Yeah, I mean, I like being able to do what you just said, you know, quickly resolve whether something's in line-of-sight, but... It always kind of makes me feel bad when I have people around a table and I notice that everybody's looking intently at the miniatures instead of each other. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, that's maybe my thing about it. Along those same lines, I tend to not use a Game Master screen. Uh, The games that I run, uh, part of it is I have dozens, hundreds of many many encounters, full adventures and things floating around in my head at any given time. And I can literally take a piece of each of eight different ones and just shake them up, dump them on in front of a bunch of players piece by piece, and, and it's a whole new thing. So I don't need a lot of notes. I am not worried about a lot of rules because I'm just quite as likely to make something up to for a fast resolution as following a book rule. And I make a lot of eye contact, draw out those who are a little shy, suppress tactfully those who are trying to monopolize my time or the game and sometimes uh, surprise people with some of the twists and turns but I'm part of the action you know I'm in there gaming with the rest of them without this wall between me and them now this isn't for everybody and you kind of have to have your act together and be calm and cool about it even if you're not really look calm and cool while you're handling like this so it's a little different but try it sometime Uh, you might get used to it and really like it I had plenty of times when I was doing a game and convinced that everybody could see that I was fudging things and making up different rules <laughs> on the spot. And afterwards, they had no, you know, they were, hey, that went great. I was like, okay, yeah, I guess I fooled you. <laughs> you will do better than you think you'll do. We're always paranoid as game masters. Is this going to be good enough? Or, I mean, they're yeah. my, they're my friends. There's a peer pressure thing. There's they're here. They're they've devoted this chunk of time this afternoon, this evening, whatever, to having fun. Am I good enough to make sure they are having fun? So there's you know even if it's the same people you've been gaming with for a long time, there's a certain amount of pressure. You know, just since we're mentioning that, uh, to wrap up this topic, there's a couple of books that Gary wrote specifically on you know being a good dm and being a good player that i think are still great to go back and read um and the titles are escaping me and i want to say them on the show can anybody remember the title? one is role-playing mastery yeah uh, that's i just saw it online the other day yes yes yeah uh i still have uh he he gave me a case of those somewhere along the line so i keep some of those uh handy i give some out just as gifts to folks, and every now and then I sell a couple at cost. I'm not yeah. looking to get rich on, um, on on eBay and offer free autographs. I mean, we're not sports yeah. stars. So, you know, autographs are free <laughs> in the game industry. Last I looked. Yeah, but anybody who's looking for them, you know, Amazon will have some used booksellers that sure. might have a copy and stuff. Uh, if there's time, I wanted to go into one last thing about TSR mm-hmm. itself, but I want to be respective of your time. Yeah, it's a little, and mm-hmm. it's a little warm in here. Yeah, we're cooking. Um, yeah, it's a thirty minute mark. That's why I was. Yeah. Okay. 235, I'm good. Okay. Whatever you want. All right, so let's get into uh, 
Jeff Grubb was on our show. Margaret Weiss was on our show. They mm-hmm. had some great stories about working at the TRSR offices. So why don't you tell us how you got involved with getting into the TRSR office? How Gary, you got hired by Gary directly? No, actually. Um, uh, let's see, to shrink this one down. I started work <laughs> at TSR on January 20th, 1980. Uh, I started on the same day as another guy you, I'm sure you've heard of, Tom Moldvay. Yes. He came in from Ohio. I came in from the Philly area, uh, respectively, where we each live. And they hired me as an editor because Tom got the design job. And boy, did they have a design job for him. Of course, they put him to work on that version of BASIC with the Aero Lotus cover, you know, right off, right out of the box. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well as, well, you want to do modules or something on the side, you know, but the, but the BASIC was practically his first thing. We worked in the same office for a bit, and then um, he moved. It, it shook out from there. But I was an unemployed, gosh, what am I going to do with my life type, uh, floating around Philly. My unemployment had run out. Were you um, doing music back then? I did some music, um, but mostly I was hanging out and gaming. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, you work a little, then you tap the, the government and sponge off the public well for a while, which I don't think much of nowadays. Back then it was, <laughs> back then it was how you eat. Um, and when it comes down to whether you eat or not, well, you can do a lot of things you wouldn't otherwise too um and uh i was running a campaign in the philly area and i realized now in retrospect it was a little much because i had this small apartment and i was having 10 12 15 people over five times a week to play D D. now this was in the 70s when it's booming okay i mean guys with day jobs and then they're up all evening playing <laughs> D D at my place and then we'd get together on saturdays and go all day on the top of that as well as weekdays um, so I'm hanging out, playing games, wondering what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to be 30 in a year, and one of my players insists, absolutely stands on my face, that you are going to apply for one of these two jobs that got advertised in Dragon. So that's how I got shoved into it. I sent in the app, uh, TSR Cold, and said, hey, can you come out for an interview? And I said, not a chance. I don't have Penny One. And so they agreed, actually, to interview me by phone. And the people who did it were Lawrence Schick and Harold Johnson. Now, uh, Law was uh, the author of White Poom Mountain, Harold of uh, Law Shrine of Tomoakan, and so forth. So these are like legendary figures I'm talking to. And one thing led to another. They uh, talked about it, decided I was sort of their kind of weird, and uh, made me an offer. So I came on out then at that point. In the early days at... TSR, at least in the 80s, I should, shouldn't say early days, because talk to Tim Kask or somebody, like he started Dragon Magazine in 76, so he predates me for, by quite a bit there. I consider myself like second wave, uh, or even third, uh, yeah. arriving in 1980. Do you have any? I just wanted. Do you have any idea when the uh, ad was in Dragon for the the job, the help wanted? September, October, something like that. Of seventy nine. Seventy nine. Okay, I'm gonna right. look for it. Right. <laughs> While we're talking. Right, cool. So you you got you're at the TSR now. You got hired to TSR. Did they approach right. you and say we want you to redo the uh, the Mulvey rules or? Well, no. Um, 
first thing was to do editing because that's what they hired me for. Okay. And that was really a very good move because that way I learned how things were done at TSR without getting stuck with a lot of commitment, a lot of stuff that I didn't really know what to do about. So I learned the people, I learned the methodologies, uh, I almost screwed up the dungeon board game and that right. when we went to the long box version from the small, yeah. because I checked over everything and everything was perfect, but then Harold Johnson, who caught, who was my supervisor, caught the error. On one side of the card sheet for the dungeon game, the cards were kind of left to right, and on the front, they were running up-down. And that wasn't something I even thought of checking as an editor. That was like a layout thing, and yeah. I, did, you know, I had no idea. So they talked about, no, it wasn't Frank's fault. It'll cost us some money. We caught it in time, but... Uh, no, it wasn't Frank's fault, so we don't toss him out right away. Uh, the real toss him out moment came around that time when Gary was writing and finished writing Keep on the Borderlands to replace Mike Carr's In Search of the Unknown module that was to go in the basic set. And the manuscript came over, and the word was, okay, spelling only. No changes of archaic terms, especially. No rephrasing from High Guy Gaxian, uh, etc., and so, and they hand it to me, the new editor. And so it's a rudimentary, routine job. I go through, I'm checking it all and looking it over. And it occurs to me as a long time, at that point, I'd been running my campaign for four years back in Philadelphia. And I look at this keep and I look at the characters, I look at the keep, I look at the listings, and there's a cleric, but there's no church for the cleric. So. I said, hey, uh, Harold, uh, there's no church for this cleric. He says, shut up and do the editing. And I said, somebody ought to point this out. This is a, a glitch. This is a design glitch. And they said, it's not a glitch. Whatever Gary writes, it's not a glitch, okay? <laughs> and I, I really made a kind of a fit about it. It was my first out-on-a-limb moment. And they said, essentially, if you don't like it here, fine. Write something up. Tell Gary he's wrong. And we'll throw you a farewell party, even though you've only been here for four months. And so I sent it over. I wrote up. It's a good example for anybody listening. Don't just diss something. Don't just pick at it. Offer a positive solution for the problem. Okay? Um, so I wrote up a suggested chapel for the cleric. And they were in the midst of planning out my farewell thing. Um, and later that week, back comes inner office Mamelo from the office of the president. And he says, uh, Gary, scribbled note, uh, yep, I was in a hurry. I forgot. Use it. <laughs> and everybody loses it. It's this new guy comes out of nowhere, and Gary admits a mistake. Now, okay. From there, um, I got to know Gary better. Uh, I got formally introduced to him as a new employee. All new employees had a meeting with the boss, because a legendary figure. It's a perk, really. Yeah. Actually, he's checking you out to see if he wants to keep you and so <laughs> forth. And so we kind of got started getting to know each other right away in 1980. I won some competition in that year, and they said, hey, why don't you start this club? And Mike Carr, uh, the general manager, had come up with the idea of the RPGA and had even named it that at that point. That's in memoranda internal uh, in the 78, 79. And so I just took their idea and ran it fully. Um, again, being a little brassy in my uh, approach, I said this should be for all role-playing games, not just TSRs. But And Gary agreed, but the rest of management said, not a chance are we promoting other people's games. 
And I was not marketing savvy enough to put it in corpse speak and say, would you like to make money off of games you don't own? <laughs> in which case, they would have been all over it. But uh, as so, for a while, it was TSR games only. Later, the RPGA brought them to be very inclusive and really industry-wide. I did that for two, three years, and in the course of which got to know Gary pretty well, and we were hitting it off pretty good as friends, in addition to him up the ladder at the top of the company and me down there in production. And then at one point he made his decision and tapped me to be the one person to write um, the entire D&D game. And it's, I think the thing I am proudest of of that period is I'm the last one-man designer of the entire game. Is to yeah. team approach from that point on, from from my last set onwards. And I think you know what though, I think that's one of the other things that a lot of people uh, kind of subconsciously catch on the older games versus, you know, nothing against anything newer. But it's the same way whether you're looking in film or games or any of these kind of things. When you have a creative approach that has an auteur at it. Okay. It's going to either crash and burn or be really, really great. And, of course, to avoid crash and burn, this being the TSR flagship that was going to be printed in the millions, literally translated into a dozen languages and go all over the world, Gary was all over me like hair on a gorilla. Every <laughs> word, every paragraph was scrutinized. Um, I mean, everything for that. I was still a relatively untried commodity. I had done okay with the RPGA, but never a mega project like this. Uh, experts said they were still on me carefully, but they were so happy with the way Basic turned out that uh, things loosened up, and by companion, I was able to draw on other TSR resources to make things happen. So I tapped, I got to mention, Gary Spiegel and Doug Niles, and I said, okay, my wargaming days are a ways back, and you guys know what people are playing these days. Help me design this war machine system so that it'll right. handle uh, 50 critters, it'll handle 50,000 critters. I once uh, I laid out the parameters for a design project, just essentially turned them loose, came back, we went back and forth, play tested. But that, uh, the, the companion set, the third of the three, is probably the highlight of my whole D&D box set career, because for the first time I was presenting <coughs> campaign rules, or, okay, guidelines, including <laughs> mass combat, including whole dominions that your, your character is ruling, and building them so that they run semi-realistically, can get put on automatic with a little number crunching, so, and then it's just work up rationales why this baron and that baron are going out <laughs> adventuring together, okay, in terms of power, national need, whatever. You're into a different level of play at that point. So, Companion, I think, was my highlight. Now, the Immortal set. Mm -hmm. What's the history behind that? Because no one has actually ever really duplicated that in the D&D history. I think Wizards, maybe in 3rd edition or 3.5, did try to do something similar. They still didn't capture your Immortal. What was the whole reasoning behind just another level of the game? You and Gary sat down and said, let's bring it to another height. Because I really like the Immortals game. I bounced, thank you. I bounced several parts of Immortals off of Gary. He Gary was really into the weapon mastery system I did in, in the master set, the black one, before that. But by the time I was work, leaning into Immortals, I merely had contact with Gary because he had been forced out in a stock juggle or that was in progress oh, at that yeah. point. So I really wrote that on my own. Now, some people joke about Immortals as being nearly unplayable. For example, here's a complete list of every possible spell, and it's just 
uh, like a spell point system. You invest a little immortal power and produce the magical effect. Yeah. You're immune as an immortal to all mortal magics. Mm -hmm. So you're like a whole different level of existence. But the reason for that really was as a capstone product, not so much intended as play at this level, although some gamers going to want to, so I made it playable. Yeah. Uh, if you have the adult approach, not adult as in X-rated <laughs> internet porn, but adult <laughs> as in approach. the more mature level of play yeah. of problem-solving, goal things, uh, so forth, rather than just going out and boffing something. You know, We used to call it boffinork syndrome in, <laughs> in uh, early AD&D. The, the famous rule about you got a jillion experience points, but you can only go up one level. So you get overstocked, and the idea is to go out, kill an orc, and then come back and convince your DM that was an adventure so you can qualify to train again. So, and then this became codified as one word, B-O-F-A-N-O-R-C, Boffinork syndrome. Um, to qualify as an adventure. You can do that at the immortal level, but yeah. it offers a whole lot more on a more mature level of entertainment. But the main purpose of the set was really to provide a capstone and to, sh to say this is how reality works within this fantasy system we have. And here's your background rationale for this, for that, for the gods, for, or immortals in this case. All these things, all these threads that were left hanging it's like the final movie in a series and resolves all the plot points and so forth and it's all a done deal. So it was sort of an odd product in presenting the underground uh, structure that supports all the previous sets while offering a playable set, but that's not its primary purpose. That's a little bit like Manual of the Plains, like Jeff Grubbs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I like a lot of Jeff's work. Oh, he's uh, a great writer. Yeah. He's really good. Actually, the one other thing I wanted to ask, as long as we're on that, since we're kind of talking about the magic systems and all that, and of course it's always called the Vancium magic system, although I guess really it was only in the one set of books right. you know, that came out like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, how much, w two, two things. One, how much was it really uh, uh, consciously applied, you know, whenever doing any game mechanics, like this is the way magic has to work? And two, have you seen that Jack Vance just wrote a new book? No, I didn't. It came out August first. I know. I'm really excited. I got oh, excellent! Out. What's the title? You know, uh, it's it's Kugel's. Uh, oh, it's Kugel again. Oh, it's Kugel. Excellent. He's my favorite. <laughs> yes. Oh, everybody's favorite for yeah. any any Vancean. And I just Vance Jack Vance wrote a new book. Yeah. Well, that as you point out, it was just in that one series that Vancean fire and forget type uh, spell system was really the the uh, soup du jour. Uh, he went different directions in different series. For some reason, that grabbed a hold of Gary, I think, as a designer. Remember, Gary's a war game designer. Yeah. Look at Alexander uh, from Gaiden Games, a, a, an ancient war game, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, well known for his contribution in various war game magazines and things. So he thinks in terms of mechanics in resolving battles like that. And by using a Vancean fire and forget magic system, if, if I can use that term, fire sure. and forget, I think it's reasonably appropriate. What he had was a real simple method for irrefutable answers of why you can and can't control this as a game mechanic and a structure, a magic system. It appealed to him at the time as a war gamer, I think. Now, there's a lot of trouble with it in the big picture rationale of why do you forget it and, and things like that. These arguments have been hashed out and I'm not going to go there. Gary Khan too, we mentioned this and I know he knows I'm a big fan, but you know, another writer did the, kind of the same thing. Zelazny kind of also does the fire and forget. To an extent, but yeah, not nearly as widespread. Zelazny's one of my 
all-time favorites. Although um, when I think about how to play a magic user, I usually have uh, uh, what is John Belair's, the, he wrote Face in the Frost. The, have you ever, you know that book? Uh, uh, it's not Belair's, though, uh, oh. I don't think. Oh, well, whoever I'm was probably the wrong, we're getting off But either way, <laughs> the way that those get those two wizards act in there are usually the ones I think of. But at any rate. At any um, oh, here we go. That it's, wasn't Howard? Uh, you know, I probably am wrong, but I just did find it's The Laughing Magician, The Adventures of Kubel. Oh, which sweet. was released on August 1st, 2010. Sweet. Oh, All right. <laughs> have, have to check that yeah. out. Um, my, among my prime directives, uh, if you will, for writing the D&D box set line was, number one, make sure it is completely different from AD&D because at this point there were legal elements in uh, reaffirming brand identity. It had to do with the ultimate settlement of the Arneson suit and so forth. But um, within those parameters, my number two objective was to go back to the roots, look at OD&D, consider Holmes and Moldbay Cook, but go back to OD&D and work from there, and then we work through certain rough spots. You, I'm sure, have noticed in Immortals, mm -hmm. I still insist on calling them demons. Mm -hmm. And whereas this was whitewashed out of 2E, Right, and they came up with names. They Demons were and other weird names. And yeah. So I had certain freedoms that they didn't uh, in in the AD and D side, but I did have certain strictures and so forth. Um, the magic system is Vancean in both, because that's the way the creators did it in both, uh, both both Gary's AD and D and the original Gygax and Arson OD and D. So that's just what we were handed. That was one of the axioms. Uh, and we didn't really worry about rationalization. <laughs> well, I think uh, we've already uh, monopolized a ton of your time, yeah. so thank you no for going problem. along with us. <laughs> sure. But yes, you're right, Gen Con is pretty wild and woolly, so I do need yeah. to be rolling along. Yeah, I really appreciate it. So, Thanks for stopping by, Frank. Yep. Frank, thank you so much. Hope that worked. <laughs> Wonderful. All right, so we're uh, we're back, and... That was, I had so much fun with that interview. And, uh, I know you did too, Jason. We were running in and out of that room trying to stop people from talking and everything. And <laughs> I know it's funny because you you heard that at the beginning there how you you know you could hear the people in the convention because we wanted to do the interview where you could tell we we're at the convention, but uh, then it turns out that I picked the yeah. one time that that normally somewhat noisy, somewhat quiet area was about to be the staging area for the anime parade. Oh my god! <laughs> the cosplay parade. So all of a sudden, there's just these people everywhere, and we ducked into the business center. So that's where you heard it got quiet. But then, of course, every now and then, somebody would want to come into the business center. But we we did our best, and Frank was a good sport about it. So people um, like uh, Sailor Moon dressed up and Pokemon all of and that. what have you. Yeah, oh all my. of all of that. I mean, I didn't see a Pokemon. Uh, that's frightening. <laughs> Yeah, it's well, you know, that's the thing. It's Gen Con's like two different conventions at once. You know, you got the anime convention and you've got the gaming convention, and they just kind of smash together. Yeah. Which, which I think is fun. You know, I don't know anything about what they're dressed up as. Uh, although I spotted somebody dressed up as my favorite independent web comic. I saw somebody there as Doctor Ninja, which is awesome. Nothing Dr. to do with anime. Oh, Doctor Ninja is great. Well, wow. um, Gen Con. Good. I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say I did also meet one of my favorite uh, gaming cartoonists, and I think you know we talked about him ages ago for full frontal nerdity. Aaron Williams, who does Nodwick Chronicles. Mm -hmm. uh, so oh yeah, yeah. Such a great guy. Really, just cool. 
fun, great guy. Like I pointed out to Jason, I said, Gen Con's also an excuse for everybody to wear the most ridiculous hat they can possibly find. Yes. That's it. Just a hat and their normal clothes. I'm like, what's the point? (laughs) Just because it's awesome. I mean, it's the one time that everybody wears their crazy hats. I would like to know if all those utility kilts that we saw actually get worn when people are not at the conventions. Probably not. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. You know... I will never ha- I will never wear one, but I Mm-mm, have so much. I. I really admire what they're trying to do. You know. Yeah, I can. There's some people wearing those kilts that shouldn't have been wearing those kilts. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I just I you know bless them for trying. They're they're actually you know what I'll bet you anything we've got some listeners who have utility kilts, and I'm going to tell. For, this is an open letter to all people who wear utility kilts. Wear it loud and wear it proud. I won't be wearing one with you, but wear it loud and wear it proud. Actually, I think they're actually kind of cool. If there was some way for that to be broadly socially acceptable, I'd be a little more. No. Oh, there was one last question I had for you before we take off for this week. But what were the meanings behind all the names of the characters in your game? You oh, never explained gee. that to us. Okay, yeah. So, so I ran the game, and I, uh, I don't have all the characters in front of me. Let's see if I can remember them off the top of my head. There was, um, you had Roy Metalbringer. Yes. And. That was, it was just the first name, Roy. Roy is the fighter in the Order of the Stick comic. Oh, okay. Yeah, you like you yes. should know. I'm like I don't know. Oh, I'm yeah, playing. that's right. Forget yeah, about and guy. there was um, there was. Let me see here. I, I the guy from the Land Before Time. Mm, gosh, I wish I could find him. Actually, you know what? I, you know, I don't have the names in front of me because I let everybody keep their sheets. But I, was... I know that I had one of the guys was based on a character from Father Ted. Uh, what about that Brick? Was, uh, I forget his name now. Brick um, was one of them. Brick. I mean, Brick actually was a uh, was from a Terry Pratchett book. Oh. And okay. Brick was actually okay. from, you know, from a troll. Uh, let me see here if I can remember the Father Ted one. Who else? Who else did we have? We had a druid. Yeah, the druid. Um, and it was. Do you t- remember any names? Tea leaf something. Oh, tea leaf. Okay, so tea leaf is the Cockney rhyming slang for a thief. So if you're if you're tea leaf, then you're a thief. And huh. um, oh, Dougal McMacMac. Yes. Dougal McMacMac. That's cool. <laughs> that was the cleric because uh, Father Dougal on Father Ted is the is the drunk you know fack all the time. You know that's his touch. <laughs> uh, God, I don't remember what else. We, what else we had? we had a ranger. Do you remember his name? Uh, no, it was some weird name, though. Well, I guarantee everything was a reference to either a uh, a British comedy or uh, some kind of uh, just like Cockney rhyming slang or something like that. So, so the, the Witch's Head was a good good module. We had fun. We just the group focused too much on that one room. Yeah, well, you know that that's a lesson to me. That's the first time that I've run an adventure at a con and. When you've got to get everything done in four hours and people have places to be, you've got to think about how to move it along. I mean, and that's what, you know, what obviously what Frank was just saying there in the interview. Uh, the, the whole question of how do you run uh, things to keep them the right length for cons. So it's something I'll learn. And uh, I'll be learning that uh, as I continue to play things at cons. I'm going to be at Gary Con next year. I will be running on behalf of Dead Game Society. Cool. Of, good, of good which I am, now cool, a full, I am now a full member of Dead Game Society. My picture up on the website and everything got my shirts. Um, and actually, Vince, I didn't see you at the uh, podcasters meet and greet. Uh, yeah, I had uh, been. I was stuck in 
Uh, sorry, I was stuck in a Catan game, actually. Oh, well, that's all right. I was stuck in a time warp. Couldn't get there. No, I, was, I went to the ballroom. It ball was really room. good. Um, the guys guys from uh, Fear the Boot were there. And, oh, uh, cool. From, from the Wandering Geek podcast. I got some great photos. We all you know, hung out. They were wonderful to meet. Uh, we had a blast. You know. Yeah, so, I, I got stuck in. I went to the ballroom. They said, remember, at 500, there was uh, all those games. So mm-hmm. I cashed in some of my generic tickets and I played in like three or four games. I had so much fun playing that game. It was like it's, a, it's awesome. addicting. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm my 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 horizons are broadened every time I go to Gen Con. So uh, so upcoming, we're gonna have uh, some great shows coming up over the next few weeks because we're gonna have some great guests. Uh, we talked about Julie already, who's who did one of the Grimtooth's traps. Uh, yep. Also coming up in a future episode, we have a. Uh, I had a nice sit down with Jim and Debbie from Gamers Rule. They're the guys that make those dungeon uh, decks. Mm. You like Nick? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. I met him. Yeah. Yeah, and also they put out the collector's guides to to D and D, collector's guides to AD and D, and we talked about all of that, which was a lot of fun. Uh, we will have the Dead Gamers Society on as special guests uh, in uh, the upcoming weeks, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a couple weeks from now. And, uh, you know, more surprises to come. Sounds like a fun time all around. It's going to so be awesome. Thanks to, thanks to everybody that we met there. It was a really, it was a blast meeting all the people at the, at the, at the uh, Roll for Initiative meetup. Uh, hopefully we'll be staying in touch with them. Uh, thanks to the Dead Gamer Society for running some of the best games there and, uh, you know, for, for, for helping us promote uh, our podcast. A lot of people got flyers from them, I saw. Uh, and you know, just everybody we met, and it was just such a blast. I can't wait to see everybody at the next convention. Definitely got to go again next year now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe all three of us can go, and we can. Uh, yeah, meet. and it was good to get to you know for for us to hang out, Nick. You know, in person, even if it wasn't at the convention. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. I got to meet each one of you. Like you know, ships passing in the night, one going one way, one going the other. But Literally. Yeah, got, yeah, but it was really cool. We. uh in a way, we just, you know, almost had a conference kind of thing going there. Yes, but, we had our uh, virtual conference. Yes. yes, it was a virtual conference. But it was <laughs> it was really good, you know, just, uh, you know, put a face to the name and just um, chit-chat about things. And Yeah, all I see of Nick every week is that same, you know, graphic picture on the uh, Skype of him with his nose and the hat. And... Isn't that weird how Nick actually looks exactly like Phineas? I thought that no, was... No, he doesn't was look like Isn't that weird? Yeah, well, I, know, you know, I thought uh, that was a drawing of Phineas' fingers, but that's a photo. That's actually well, Phineas is my uncle. So. Oh, oh okay. That's why I just... <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, so let's... Uh, I think we've uh, taken enough time from you people, fine people out there. Let's head out for uh, the Roll for Initiative podcast, uh, The Road Home from Gen Con, we'll call this, I guess. I don't know. Nice. Uh, uh, this is Vince signing off for Jason and Nick. Keep it original, keep it old school, and keep the revolution going for old school gaming. See you all next week. Bye, everybody. Roll for Initiative. www.d20radio.com. <laughs>